Cuff Radio is about to begin. Everybody loves a hero. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Real Cuff Radio, where tonight we, our guest is Ashley Smith, the author of Unlikely Angel. Welcome, Ashley. Hi, thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for coming. I know that your story is going to be a story that's going to encourage a lot of people. I kind of would like you to start, if you don't mind, um, your book goes into detail about your your husband and mm-hmm. what happened there. And as uh, much time as it takes, just go ahead and start telling us your testimony. I'm just going to start by telling you this. I was raised by my mom and my grandparents. Um, my biological father left when I was about one. He was a severe drug addict and alcoholic, and he actually died because of that just a couple years ago. My grandparents had a huge role in teaching me about Jesus and raising me and teaching me about life. From a very young age, uh, Proverbs 22.6 was true in my life. Train a child up in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. My grandparents taught me every morning that I spent the night, um, the next morning we would read um, Our Daily Bread. It was a little a um, devotional book, and, and my grandparents always taught me that God was the most important thing and should be the most important thing in your life. I was raised um, in a private Christian school. I was very close to my mom as my grandparent, as well as my grandparents. When I was seven years old, um, I remember my grandfather was a retired Marine for 25 years, there were times that I would wake up to I mean, seriously, he's a hardcore Marine. Um, he was the uh, headmaster of the school that I went to for a little while, and he was uh, a non-denominational preacher. So I'm telling you that so you will understand, I had structure in my life, very uh, straight structure. Um, but I remember being seven years old, and I remember being at Revival at my church, and it wasn't him, it was a different preacher preaching, and he was banging on the pulpit, banging on them, talking about the fiery gates of hell. And I just remember as a seven-year-old going, oh my goodness, I do not want to burn in that fiery place. And so I tugged on my grandpa's jacket, I said, you got to help me invite Jesus into my heart. And for me, that is when I accepted Christ into my life. That is when I became a Christian. That is not, begin, that is not when I began to walk with Christ every day. Um, but I believe that he came in and he lived there from that point on. I did um, say all my Bible verses. I was a very good kid. I was involved in sports. Um, I actually became um, in love with a game of basketball at a very young age, so much that I wanted to play college ball when I got older. I knew how much dedication and hard work that was going to, um, to take, and so I began to practice and practice and Pretty much my life consisted of school, basketball, church, and family, really, until I was about 15 years old. When I was 11, though, um, my mom got remarried to a man that she knew for about six weeks. I wasn't really happy about the situation, but the marriage took place, and they stayed married for many, many, many years. I remember the first year after they got married, they asked me what I wanted for Christmas, and I still wasn't really happy that they were married, and so I thought I would be funny. 
And I said, well, I would like to have a baby brother for Christmas. And I would like to name him what I want to name him. Well, if you know anything about me, what I wanted to name him was after my favorite basketball player, Christian Leitner. He played for the Duke Blue Devils. And so, needless to say, for Christmas that year, I got a pair of Nike tennis shoes. Um, but nine months later, my little brother came along. And I remember thinking he was just the greatest thing in the world, and I loved him so much. And we got to name him Christian, and it was so, so cool. Well, nine months and three weeks after that, my little sister came along, and I surely did not ask for her. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I wanted to put her back because she just wasn't part of my picture. I'm telling you that so you'll understand. I went from, at this point, I was about 13 years old. My basketball was going really, really good. My family was considered transferring me to public school so I would get exposure. But I'm telling you that so you'll know, I went from an only child to two siblings, and all of the attention was on me to hardly any of the attention was on me. And I wasn't really sure how I liked that, um, but I adjusted somewhat. We went to church every time the doors were open. I, I mean, I, I was involved in the youth and, you know, all the good stuff that I can tell you was there. In the ninth grade, um, my family did put me in um, one of the local public schools. And I can remember going to that public school the first year. I made the varsity basketball team as a freshman and I played. I didn't just sit the bench. So I'm not bragging to you how great I was, but I was very good at what I did because I practiced and I put in the hard work. Now, when I went to this, this school, I began to see all of these kids doing these things that I knew I wasn't supposed to be doing these things. Just the way that they spoke, some of them used horrible language. I mean, you know, the, it's the worldly, the worldly view of what was going on. I tried to stay away from that. I still tried to stay focused on school and basketball, and, and life went on. Um, my junior year, I had what I thought was the cutest boyfriend in the world. I drove the nicest car. I had scouts sitting in the stands. They were going to come watch my basketball games and offer me scholarships, and life was good. Um, but I felt like there was something missing in my life. In hindsight, 2020, as I stand here today, I know that really what was missing in my life was a one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship that I walk with him and I talk to him. And even if I'm mad at him one day, I say, God, I don't, I don't understand. And and you know this anyways, but I'm mad. I didn't have that. I had everything that was taught to me. I knew my Bible verses. I knew the right things to say, but it, I wasn't really living it out. What I thought was missing the summer before my senior year was that I wasn't part of the cool crowd at school. And don't you know, right before we, we uh, got out for summer, one girl came up to me and she said, hey, we like really want you to come hang out with us this summer. We're going to be seniors. We're going to have a party every weekend, and it is just going to be awesome. And I just thought the world stopped, and I had arrived. I was like, oh, yes, I finally get to be a part of this, this cool crowd. Well, I went to one of these first parties, and I saw all these kids. They were rolling around on the ground. They were laughing. They were tripping over things. And I'm thinking, what is so funny? And then I began to realize as I took a big breath in that these kids were either drunk or high on something. And of course, my heart dropped to think, oh my gosh, I'm not supposed to be doing that. You know, that, that's, that's not a good thing. But then that big, loud voice of Satan perched right on my shoulder and he said, but look, they're so having fun. They are laughing. Nobody's getting hurt. Just try it. This is what you wanted, isn't it? 
And so from the very next party on, I began to smoke marijuana and I began to drink alcohol and I began to party my senior year away. Let me just tell you something. My whole life literally changed right then and there because the only thing I cared about at that point was partying and having a good time with my friends. I played every single game my senior year high. I still scored 25 points a game and I still outplayed everybody on the court. But I began to yell at my coaches. I began to yell at my teammates. I began to yell at the referees. And yes, there were scouts sitting in the stands. But do you think they offered me a scholarship? No way. I wouldn't have even wanted me on my team by the way that I was acting. As a matter of fact, my life changed so dramatically. My parents began to realize it. My family was like, oh my goodness, maybe it's just a stage and she'll grow out of it. Well, I graduated from high school and I went on to college. I only enrolled in college because my parents said I had to. With that being said, I never went to college the first two semesters, so I got put on academic suspension. And quite honestly, I didn't care. Like I said before, I cared about partying with my friends. It completely took over my life. Now, at this point in my life, I had done just about every drug you could imagine. It went very quickly. You know, you'll say, oh, I'll do this, but I'll never do this. It always happens. Oh, I'll do this, but I'll never do this. Take it from me. I promise you it's going to happen. Well, when I was about 19 years old, I remember I was in a pool hall shooting pool, and I looked up from the table, and I thought what I saw was the most amazingly cute boy I had ever seen in my life, and boy, I wanted him to be my boyfriend. Well, he and I began to date that evening, and he solved a problem that I had. See, I didn't want to follow my parents' rules anymore, and he had his own place, and so I decided I would just move in with him, and we could just party and live happily ever after. You know, I, I'm telling you this so you can see how jaded and, and very blurry my vision was at that point in time. For 10 months, that, that's what happened. We partied all the time. He went to work. I recovered the next day. And, and about 10 months after that happened, I woke up puking one morning severely. And the next morning, and the next morning, and the next morning. Until I went to the doctor, and the doctor said, Oh, you're going to have a baby. I'm going to have a what? How did that happen? And the doctor said, uh, I'm pretty sure you know how that happened. And I remember thinking, boy, when I go home and tell my boyfriend this, and this boy that loved me so much, as he said, told me I had two choices. I can have an abortion and I can stay or I could get out of his house because he didn't want me. He didn't want to be a father at that young age. Well, I knew what was instilled in me was that I was supposed to have this baby and do whatever I needed to do. So shortly after he told me to get out, he called, and I'm pretty sure that my stepdad scared him half to death. He called me and asked me if we, got, we could get married. <laughs> Go figure. So <clears throat> we, at 20 years old, got married. We had a baby who was 10 weeks early. She weighed 2 pounds, 14 and a half inches, and she, was, she could fit in my palm. And I remember looking at her when she was born thinking, wow, okay, here I am, 20 years old, a mother to a baby smaller than I've ever seen in my entire life. What am I supposed to do with her? And at this point in my life, I knew the decisions that I had made for the past several years were horrible. And I began to believe Satan's lie of you're really, really bad. God will never, ever love you anymore. It's too late. You've done too much. 
And so after my little girl was born, I kept thinking, I've got to, I've got to be a better parent towards her. My husband and I said, you know what? This, is, this has got to stop. We've got to stop partying so much. We've got to be good parents. He owned his own construction company. Financially, we were taken care of. But we decided that we wouldn't party as much anymore. So we set aside one night every weekend that we would go out and have our fun or what we thought was fun at that point in time, and we would be good during the week. Well, that went on for about two years. And on August 18th of 2001, my husband and I went out, as we normally did, and he ran into some friends or old friends of his. And to make a very long story short, he was stabbed in the heart, and he died in my arms about two minutes. And I can seriously remember thinking, what's going on? I mean, what, wait a minute. He was dying in my arms, and, and I kept seeing my husband and my best friend and my little girl's daddy and the man that had provided everything in my life for me slip away from me. And I remember thinking to myself, but, but you're my God, and, and now you're my family is a very God-loving family. They just want everybody in the world to love Jesus. And they came to me and they said, Honey, don't you understand? This is God trying to get your attention. This is God trying to tell you your life has gone too far. Come back the other way. I so wish I would have listened to my family at that point in time. Instead, I listened to my so-called friend that came to me and said, Here, if you just take this, it'll make the pain go away. Here, if you take this, it'll make the pain go away. I would stand up here and lie to you if I told you that the stuff that they gave me didn't make the pain go away. Because it did. It was a temporary fix. It always came back the next day. I was angry. I was sad. I was confused. I felt every emotion that I could ever imagine feeling, and I did not want to feel it. And so all I did was cover it up and cover it up with more and more drugs. Here I have this little girl who's two and a half years old who doesn't have a father anymore and she just wants to be loved by her mom. And I can't even love myself. And I know deep down inside, or I feel like I know deep down inside that God doesn't love me anymore. I am a horrible, horrible person who has done drugs. My, I, my husband was killed. You know, yada, 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 yada. I was having a pity party. I was introduced to methamphetamine in February of 2003, and that is when my life really went downhill. I got so strung out on meth that I thought um, that terrorists were after me. They wanted to come get me because I was this important person, and, and all of these really off-the-wall thoughts. Actually, one day I was driving my car down the road, and, and I thought I heard God talking to me. And he said, Ashley, you need to let go and let God. And I thought, Seriously? Like, I need to let go of the steering wheel and let you? Okay, well, God, if you're really talking to me, I'm going to let go of the steering wheel, and I'm going to let you drive, and I'm going to close my eyes, and if you're talking to me, I'll wake up, and everything will be okay. I woke up three days later in intensive care with a severed pancreas, two broken arms, and three broken ribs. You know what? God didn't mean for me to let go of the steering wheel. He meant for me to let go of the drugs. When I woke up, of course, I just wanted to be better and be better. And I don't want to go on this long story about how long I stayed messed up on drugs. It was a very, very long time. But after I got out of the hospital, my aunt presented me with custody papers. And she said, we're going to take your little girl away from you. 
and we want you to go get help, and we want one day to give her back to you. Well, I went through three or four different rehab centers because the paper said that I had to go, and one day I remember my family uninvited me to Christmas. Like, all 35 members of my family were going to Christmas, and my phone rang and said, we, we don't want to see you here because we're tired of the way you're living. And that was when I said, you know what, I need to go get help. The last recovery center I went to, it wasn't a Christian place, but you could go to church and you could read your Bibles. And, and that's where I began to talk to God. And I began to tell God, God, you've got to do this for me. And you've got to do this and you've got to do this. I didn't begin to listen to God at that point, but I began to talk to him. So I got out of this recovery center and, and I moved to Atlanta. And once I was in Atlanta, I got a job and things were looking up for me. And I stayed clean for about four or five months. You know what that means. I'm going to tell you that I relapsed. But when I relapsed, I remember thinking, man, I had it so good for a while. Life was really, really good. See, those four months that I, while I, when I came out of rehab, those four months, once again, I told God, I got this. I don't need your help. I can do it. You taught me everything I needed to know at that place. Now I got this. But how wrong was I? I'm going to tell you how wrong I was. On March 11th of 2005, as I sat in my apartment in Atlanta, Georgia, I remember turning on the TV, hearing that this man had escaped from the Atlanta courthouse and he had killed these people, and my phone rang. And my stepdad said, honey, you need to be careful. He, he's going to come get you. Are you serious? I mean... Every father in the world wanted to warn their daughter about that, but he really wasn't going to come get him, okay? Especially since the courthouse was 45 miles away from me. So I went to work later on that evening, and I got off work, and I came back home, and I was putting away some things in my apartment. And At the time, I was a smoker, and, and I was supposed to visit with my little girl the next day. And so I was trying to get everything ready in the house for her to come, and, and I ran out of cigarettes, to just be quite honest. <laughs> I went to the store, and I got some cigarettes, and while I was out going to the store, I noticed a truck pulling up close to my apartment. I didn't think anything about it. I thought it was a neighbor. When I left and I came back about five minutes later, this man was still sitting in the truck. And I thought it was a little weird, but I wanted to think the best of things, so I got out of my car, and I started to walk to my door. And as I walked to my door, I heard him get out of the car and come up behind me. And I remember turning around, looking, and there was literally this, like, seven-foot-tall man that weighed 800 pounds pointing a gun at me. Really, he was about 210, 6'3". Um, but he appeared to be that big, like, like David and Goliath. And he was pointing the gun at me, and, and, he, and I started to scream, and he said, Shut up. If you be quiet, I won't kill you. Well, I don't know about you, but if somebody tells you that, you're going to try to follow everything that they, they say. So this man took me in the house, and, and, um, and he closed and locked the doors. Nobody was in my house that night. And I was actually held hostage for about seven hours by this man that had escaped from the Atlanta courthouse that my stepdad had warned me from. Now, that's like a whole big thing missing in between. But let me tell you this. When he took me hostage, I did not know that it was the man that had escaped from the Atlanta courthouse, and here's why. Because my aunt had told me that she had gone to Bible study a week before and that she had prayed, God, if Ashley's not going to change, please just take her home. I thought this was the man that was coming to take me home because I wasn't going to change. 
So as I'm sitting here in my apartment talking to this guy, he says, do you know who I am? And, and, and he finally tells me he's the man that has escaped from the courthouse and killed these people. Of course, I began to beg for my life. And after about an hour of him holding me hostage, he asked me if I had any drugs. Well, I did have drugs in my apartment that night, and I was trying to do everything in the world to cooperate with him. So when he asked me for them, I was like, Shh, I got them here. You can have them. Go ahead. Take them. But here's the turning point in my life. As I got the drugs out for this man and put them on the table, he said, are you going to do this with me? And at that point in time, I promise you, I knew that Jesus Christ took the body of the man that was holding me hostage. And he said, this is it. You're going to choose me right now, or you're going to choose these drugs. And if you choose these drugs, I'm taking you home. I don't have anything left for you. Three times he asked me, are you going to do this with me? Would you like to do this with me? How about you do this with me? And beyond a shadow of a doubt, I looked at that man and I said, you know what? Those things have ruined my life. And if I have five minutes to live, or if I have 50 years to live, I promise I will never, ever touch that again. And by the grace of God, God set me free. Let me tell you something. If I would ever have been justified in my entire life to do drugs, it was that moment right then and there. But when I gave all of my addiction to God and said, you know what, here, I can't do this anymore. I am broken. I am confused. I am miserable. I want my baby back. I want a life with God back. I want it all, and I don't know how to find it. It was when I completely surrendered and said, Lord, change me. Lord, make it better. Lord, here I am to do whatever you want to do with. Over the next seven hours, this man that killed four people did nothing to me but scare me to death. He didn't harm me one bit at all. As a matter of fact, before he let me go free the next morning, he said, I wish I would have met you on different terms because I think we could have been friends. This is a brutal murderer who killed four people who could have done anything in the world to me. As a matter of fact, I was prepared for him to rape me, to beat me beyond belief, and to leave me for dead. And he literally let me walk out the next morning unharmed. I remember walking to the car, my knees just to shake and going, I've got to call the police. I called the police and told them that this man that escaped was in my house. And they're like, are you sure? Are, are you really sure? And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, y'all been looking for this man for 24 hours. You better get to my house and get him. The police came and, and it was a big to-do. You know, there vans everywhere, men running with Uzis and all, all kinds of stuff. It was so crazy. But I remember thinking, wow, God just changed me. He changed me for real. You can't, I can't tell you how many times I said, oh God, I'm so, I'm so sorry for doing that many drugs. Please don't let me die. I promise I'll never ever do it again. And I would do it again and do it again and do it again. This time, God changed me. I remember after Brian Nichols came out and surrendered and, and nobody else got hurt, I remember thinking, whoa, now what? <laughs> now what was the next page on the front of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution? I'm talking about the entire page, not just a little picture. was a huge picture of me, and the caption was, 
an angel sent from God. And I was like, ooh. Um, is there a rock I can hide under somewhere? Did I just tell you a story of an angel? No way. I told you a story of a broken, messed up person who has been through what my grandma says is more than she could ever imagine in her life at 34 years old. But God has orchestrated every bit of my life to help me reach others now. I remember that picture being, I was like, oh my goodness, what do I do? And here comes these people knocking on the door, calling, Oprah, Oprah, Larry King, hey, will you come be on my show? Hey, will you do this? Josh Turner being my friend. I know y'all know who Josh Turner is. I'm like, what? This is unbelievable. I go from zero, uh, from, from drug addict mom to... Everybody knows me in 0.6 seconds. That doesn't make sense. God, what do you want me to do with this? I began to get very involved in my Bible and with youth at my church, and I just began to pour my life into God and say, why did you save the lonely widow drug addict mom who didn't deserve anything? And God kept coming back telling me, because you will tell the world that I did it for you. Ashley Smith Robinson didn't do anything in that apartment that night, but surrender my complete life to God and say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He gives me strength every single day. My little girl, I now have custody back. I've had her for a very long time, and she drives me nuts. But I absolutely love that she drives me nuts because I think about, wow, she could not have a mom and a dad. She could be driving somebody else nuts right now. But she's a wonderful, wonderful kid. Um, my, my current husband, my, he'll be my husband until I die, for goodness sake. But, but he and I used to party together a long time ago. And he went to prison, and he met Jesus in prison. And I remember in 2006, he came out of prison, and he called me and wanted to take me out on a date. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm not dating an ex-con, especially when my life has changed. I mean, I'm too good for this now. You know, and he is a godly man who is a wonderful father to all three of our children. I went back to school, even though my grade point average was a point zero seven in college when I started. Yeah, <laughs> I graduated um, in 2010 with a 3.8 as a radiology tech, and um, I really love my job. But more than I love my job, I love speaking, but I love talking to you all. Because the world wants to tell y'all things are fun that aren't fun. And I don't want it to tear you apart the way it tore me apart. You don't have to go through it. If you stay close to God, I wish I would have from a young... I, I had everything that there was to have to teach me. And I struggle with that with my little girl. She loves Jesus too, but... but the world. I told her the other day, I feel like I'm losing you to the world. I don't feel like I've lost you. I feel like I'm losing you. Your iPad is not that important. Your iPhone is not that important. You're, the only reason your friends are that important is so y'all can help further the kingdom of God. Your parents want the best for you. I haven't always been the greatest example for my little girl. But every day I continue to strive to be better and better and better. So she see what really is important 
is loving Jesus and letting others see you love Jesus. All right, that's it. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. I know that your story is going to be a story that's going to encourage a lot of people. Well, Ashley, I want to thank you for coming on. And just to let the listeners know, if you have not seen the movie Captive, that is the the movie about her whole story. But better than that is read her book, which is called Unlikely Angel. And uh, it gives a lot more details. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these Hollywood movies have to cut out anything where they talk about God and stuff like that. But still, the movie's, the movie's good, but the book is much better. And I got to say, well, that's a wrap. But I just want to give you a follow-up from a local um, TV station that did an interview with Brian Nichols from his jail cell. Um, so I'm going to put that on afterwards so you can listen to it. The Fulton County Courthouse killer is opening up to us, Channel 2 Action News, 11 years after that deadly rampage. Brian Nichols says he has stayed quiet because he didn't want to cause more damage than he already has. It was March 2005 when Nichols escaped from the Fulton County Courthouse that touch off chaos in the streets and a massive manhunt. Nichols killed four people, including a judge. He's now breaking his silence in an exclusive interview with Channel 2's investigative reporter Mark Winnie. And Mark joins us now live inside the courthouse. This is where the murderous rampage started. Mark? That's right. The killings that began in this courtroom, what was then Judge Roland Barnes' courtroom, gripped the nation. And this interview with Brian Nichols offers us the opportunity to look into the mindset of one of the most notorious active shooters in America, the most notorious in Georgia's history. The calls came from the courthouse shooter, Brian Nichols. I did some very bad things. His victims in March 2005, Judge Roland Barnes, court reporter Julie Brandau, Deputy Hoyt Teasley, federal agent David Wilhelm. Doing an interview with you, there will be nothing that I want from that, really, other than to express my remorse for the things that I've done. To stay inside prison rules, a friend of Nichols, who says she's the only non-family member on his small approved call list, relayed our questions with her phone on speaker on several calls. Have you sought redemption? Have you asked God for forgiveness. Have you asked God for forgiveness? I have. I have. I pray and I ask for forgiveness. The subject matter, wide-ranging. Would you ask him, were you too wrapped up in yourself, in your selfish needs, in the time leading up to the killings and during the killings? I think I was delusional. I think that drugs and alcohol played a part in those delusions. Is there something that uh, someone could take away from, from this talk, it will be to recognize and understand the harm that marijuana can do. Was justice done to Brian Nichols? You know, it doesn't matter. Things are as they are. If I could go back and, and do things differently, of course I would. I can't play the hand that I wish I was dealt. You know, I have to, to play the hand that I have. Now, there is much, much more that we talked to Brian Nichols about. Was there almost a fifth murder victim? More about the role he says marijuana 
played. And is he sorry for himself or his victims? That and more coming up on Channel 2 Action News at 6.